Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to another Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor at large at Sports Pro. Hope you're all very well. Uh, great to be back with you once again. Now, obviously 2020 has not been an optimal year for getting new entities off the ground, uh, depending on your disposition at least. But today we are going to be talking about a new venture, uh, this one in the sport of triathlon. The Professional Triathletes Organisation was officially launched in January. It is, as the name suggests, a professional member's body uh, and it was created to improve the commercial prospects for that sports elite, uh, working up some events and assets uh, whose proceeds they can share in, uh, but which will also grow the sport as a whole. It's going to sit alongside the other promoters and governing bodies in triathlon and while it's taken some cues from other individual sports like golf and tennis, uh, it will be doing its own thing as well. Speaking of tennis, this is also what Chris Kermode did next. I'm referring of course to the former ATP executive chairman uh, who left the men's tennis tour last year after six years at the helm uh, and a time in the sport where he'd successfully established the ATP finals in London. He'd launched the experimental ATP Next Gen finals, brought in new sponsors and new growth and other new events and much more besides. Uh, Chris is now the vice chairman of the PTO as well as a board member. Um, and I spoke to him and just as importantly to Sam Renouf, who is the PTO chief executive about the organization's concept and its mission. We discussed the potential of triathlon commercially uh, and as a broadcast spectacle. Uh, backing from Michael Moritz, uh, the challenge of launching and coordinating activities in a pandemic, how PTO events can be different, and indeed how sports events can be different uh, from the use of athlete profiles to drive media attention to the possibilities of fan participation in content. Uh, we covered that among Many other things. There's lots to get through in what is a really interesting conversation. Should just note that we had to change our recording setup for this one a bit. We were using a different platform due to some technical difficulties, but hopefully that won't affect your enjoyment too much and the quality is still pretty reasonable. Speaking of changes to the podcast, regular listeners might have noticed a slightly altered release schedule in the past couple of weeks. That's not a permanent shift by any means. It's just an adjustment for some of the other things we have going on uh, that we need to cover here on the pod uh, and elsewhere through the team. That might persist for a little while with more episodes some weeks than others. So just a heads up. Uh, it's because we have plenty happening right now with the Insider Series returning on the 30th of September, uh, looking at athletes in business, sportsbrainsiderseries.com for more. Sports Pro Asia is coming on the 21st and 22nd of October. SportsProAsia.com for everything you need there. We've got a new magazine out towards the end of next month with a focus on the sports broadcast sector. And you thought we'd forgotten about it, didn't you? But 50 Most Marketable is back for 2020. It's going to be a bit different this year, but it's going to be very, very interesting indeed. So keep eyes peeled and ears to the ground for that over the next few weeks. Uh, we'll have some stuff here on the podcast. We'll have lots more over on sportspromedia.com. Okay, that's what's coming up over the next few weeks. Over the next 45 minutes or so, we've got Sam Renouf and Chris Kermode. 
This is the Sports Pro Podcast. Sam Renouf and Chris Kermode, welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. So Sam, for the record, you are the Chief Executive of the Professional Triathletes Organisation. Chris, you are better known to some of our listeners in another guys, and we'll, we'll get onto that a little bit later. But what's your what's your role now at the PTO? So I've come on as uh, Vice Chairman and uh, just started recently and on the board of the PTO. Okay, well, we can we can talk a bit about the, the kind of route that's taken you there um, over the, the last few months and, and some of the things that you're hoping to accomplish. But um, Sam, why don't we start with you and, and just have a, a quick introduction to the PTO and, and what its mission is? Sure, happily, yeah. Um, so we've been set up Recently, we've sort of launched commercially in January, though the organization's been underway for about three years. And we're essentially the, the membership body of professional triathletes are so set up very similarly to the ATP. Hence, you know, obviously the relevance of, of Chris joining us recently and the PGA Tour as a, you know, a member body owned and operated by professional triathletes to further the sport of, of professional triathlon or, or more specifically the sport, the professional aspects of the sport of triathlon. Our, our mission is to celebrate the sport um, and the professional aspects of how we see uh, that being driven. And where do you see yourself sitting alongside the existing uh, tour operators, event promoters that that work within the sport? So it's very similar. Without again referencing too many other sports, it's it's a, it's it's a real comparison to the other codes that have a professional athlete body. Um, we sit alongside you know professional um, tour organisers or you know race organisers more more the vernacular we would use in in triathlon and underneath the governance of you know the national governing bodies and uh, and indeed the international governing body, which in, in triathlon is the ITU. So we're we're here as the you know the newest member of the triathlon community and indeed I guess the newest member of the professional um, sports community. Is there any sense that you're you're going to be competing with those? Is there any sense that you're going to be um, you know offering obviously you, you have uh, the the ITU as you say which kind of is the the ranking route into the Olympic Games and, and all that type of stuff um, and then you have Ironman which is offering an ultra product. Do you sit alongside those as you see it? Do you sit as a competitor do you did you see another way of getting events to happen is it purely a case of having that little bit more um athlete control what what gap were you going for yeah it, it's certainly um we sit alongside but but very different in sort of the outlook and, and both the mission of the organization so i mean to touch on why we've we've come about and, and really the last few months uh, we were you know set up for really a philosophical reason which is you know following in the path of of other sports organizations and indeed other other sports where the athletes united and went on a path of you know self-determination is something we, we talk about a lot here so in you know whether it's in golf whether it's in tennis whether it's in darts there are many different sports where the professionals recognize that there was probably a better path for the sport and so they united formed an, an organization and in doing so um, that unity brought power and ultimately they're able to use that power to, to further the sport. Um, and that really gets onto sort of the commercial side. So, I mean, the philosophically, we're here to take the sport forward with the professionals in mind and the professionals as the driving force. But from a commercial perspective, there is um, this isn't a philanthropic venture. We're very much intending to you know create profits and increase the increase the revenues in the sport. And, and for that reason, we brought on a, a financial investor in January just before the world all went crazy. And that's really enabled us to, to well go forward with our business plan, obviously, 
heavily impacted by COVID-19 goes without saying. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's also something I'm sure we'll get onto and, you know, it kind of hovers over every conversation. But let's let's look at the structure a little bit. Your membership organization, you have uh, investment as well. But how does everything sit within that when you've also begun to develop um, your own event properties? What what else do we need to know about about how the uh, how the PTO operates? So um, structure is yeah a membership body. So we're we're a non-profit at our core, um, and we're representing the professional triathletes that race around the world. There's around 350 members. Um, essentially, every every member of the, sorry every athlete that has a professional license is a member. It doesn't cost them anything. They just have to be you know sanctioned by their their governing body. And from a both a governance and a structure, I suppose if I deal deal with that question, yeah, governance wise. Um, Nonprofits. We have both an athlete board um, and then a business board, which Chris has just joined. Um, and then underneath that, obviously, to to be able to create events and go on to sort of our plans, as as you touched on just then, we needed investment, we needed finance and resources, and so we created a commercial entity underneath, which is you know owns all of the commercial rights. Which you know, given the current environment, I think we're seeing a lot of trends towards. Um, sporting bodies looking at uh, how their commercial rights are structured and potentially bringing on institutional institutional investment. We did that pretty early on. And so we have formed what I believe, and you could probably, when you tell me otherwise, you would know better than me. I think we actually have a unique structure in sport and that we have a 50-50 ownership um, of the commercial rights between athletes and capital. And, you know, capital is maybe a very blunt word to use for an investor, but and our investor is a, a very long-term, uh, very successful um, technology investor in the form of um, Crankstart Investments, which is the personal vehicle of Sir Michael Moritz of Sequoia Capital. So he's a Silicon Valley investor, one of the first people to sort of back Google, Airbnb, and all these different companies. And so um, obviously we needed to have investment to get the venture moving. And so we've created what I believe is the only model in sport, but please correct me if I'm wrong, where we have complete alignment between finance and um, talent in the form of the athletes. So what we've done is create a joint venture which holds all of the commercial rights of the PTO. So as we create events and broadcast rights and things like that, that's owned by the PTO commercial entity. And that's 50-50 between our investors and the athletes, um, which I think is unique. And it's, it should cause alignment you know, into the future as, as we build out the organization. What kind of conversations did you have you know, obviously you've, you've brought Chris on now and, and we'll bring him in uh, into the chat in just a moment. But what kind of conversations did you have elsewhere in the world of sport before coming up with that way of doing things? Well, uh, two things, really. One, it's really that triathlon is a bit of a sleeping giant within the sports industry in terms of its value. Um, and that's mainly because of the lack of broadcast structure, which you know is a longer topic we could we can touch on. But to give you a, a couple of statistics, the the incumbents or the the fans within triathlon have some of the highest household incomes of any sport. In fact, it's dramatically higher than most groups realize. So in North America, to give you an example, um, the average household income of a long distance triathlete is two hundred twenty thousand US dollars versus just under a hundred for for golf. And so most of our conversations actually started there is that this is a hugely valuable sport that has grown dramatically over the last 10, 15, 20 years, but is massively um, under commercialized because of the lack of professional and broadcast sport. It's, it's largely a, a participation based business. Right. And you, you touched on Ironman before. They're very, very successful in selling um, essentially grassroots sport. Um, so that's really where our, our conversations first started, was really explaining the commercial value, sort of this this hidden giant that we think um, 
can be commercialized and brought to market. And then secondly, speaking very candidly, we had a lot of really interested people speak to us and we were very lucky in that we were able to be quite choosy with which which partners we would have and that we only really wanted people that would buy into the 50-50 model of alignment with the athletes. Um, and that's why, uh, you know, in Michael Moritz, so Crankstart Crank Investments is his investment group. Um, he was a very natural fit because, of course, you know, he's backed lots and lots of companies over the years and is very used to aligning with talent. Chris, I wanted to bring you in at, at this point. When, when when was your first point of contact with the PTO? Well, actually, I had a call from uh, Charles Adamo, whose sort of brainchild this is, um, or about three years ago, actually, um, when I was heading up the ATP. And he was just sort of, it was a casual conversation, sort of saying he was doing this and really just wanting some bits of advice. And I passed on what I uh, thought was good advice. And um, then I didn't hear anything till uh, January this year. Um, and we had another conversation and then about two months after that, so yeah, sort of March, um, he called and said, uh, would I be interested in, uh, coming on the board and, uh, the start of this journey? And I mean, obviously those initial conversations, you were in a very different place. You had a very exacting full-time role elsewhere in the sports industry, but coming into this year, what was it about this opportunity that, that appealed? <laughs> it's a very good question because quite a lot of people have asked me that. And um, there, there, there's sort of two, well, one response really, but uh, there's two, but they're linked. But the, the first one was actually um, a, a childish thing that I have, which is when people say things are very difficult to do or impossible to do or to achieve, makes me actually very interested to prove people wrong. And um, so it's getting into involved in a sport that, um, you know, Sam has uh, mentioned, uh, you know, it has huge potential, but hasn't even really started to, you know, to hit that potential. And, you know, I spoke to a lot of people in sport who said, oh, you know, it's going to be a very difficult product to sell and to, um, to grow. And it just appealed to uh, a challenge for me to uh, be involved in this. And the, the, the reason I'm convinced that this will work is, is very simple. People overcomplicate the sports model. They overcomplicate you know, the sort of ingredients that are needed to make a sport successful. And it is, you know, I said it time and time again at the ATP, but sport is about caring who wins over someone else. That is as simple as that. And there are various types of sport. So you can break it down into you, you obviously have um, sport that has country versus country. You have sport that are team sports and you have individual sports. And the country versus country sports model um, <clears throat> is, you know, the Olympics as an example, World Cup, you know, soccer. You know, these, these are very simple sports products to sell um, because it taps into a, everyone's sort of uh, jingoistic desire and everyone has it. Um, and so you, you're immediately tap into that and almost whatever the sport is, is going to be successful. Team sports are the midway through, which is where, um, you know, team sports like the country ones are tribal. So you go with friends to support a, a team that probably 
is in your DNA. Your father supported the same team. I think of sort of Premier League soccer. Um, you know, the grandfather supported the same team. Um, you go with a whole load of mates that support the same team. So you go as a tribal unit. And again, that's actually quite relatively easy uh, uh, proposition to sell. And some, you know, some teams uh, actually expand uh, their reach way more than, say, a geographical location. So you look at somewhere like Manchester United, they've actually not just tapped into that team and local thing. Um, you know, they've made it a national uh, desire to follow and even international and, you know, especially in Asia, they're, they're huge. So, but it is belonging to something. Now, individual sports are much, much harder to sell um, because you don't have the team spirit and you don't have the country uh, element. But it's the principle is still the same. You're putting on a sport and you have to care who wins that event. So <clears throat> in the triathlon uh, world, like golf, individual sport, like tennis, it's about creating characters. It's about storytelling and everybody in the world has a story to tell. And once you know that story, um, there's an emotive and emotional connection uh, with that person. And that's likely for you to tune in and to follow the, the sport. And so I like the part that it's, um, it's a, a difficult um, proposition, a challenging one, coupled with that I do think if you stick to the simple pr principles of, of selling sport, that it really can work. The other huge attraction for me was, you know, it is a global sport. Um, not many sports are truly, truly global, but, uh, you know, triathlons are done everywhere in the world. And that's also very, very appealing. Um, and to start something, you know, right at the beginning of its journey for me uh, with a new venture, it was very exciting. Yeah, there's see a lot to unpack there. But the when, when you looked at the commercial market as it exists right now in triathlon, what was your take on it? What was your understanding of it? And what kind of work do you think needs to go in to connect that vision that you have of kind of selling stories and selling the stories of individual athletes? in that environment what what how do you connect those dots well i think um i think it's event based um so you build up events that have real meaning and you look at all the big sports around the world especially the global sports you know they have iconic events that become the sort of destination uh you know event venue to go to um you know you look at golf you have you know augusta um i'm not a golf fan but I find, but I'm a sports fan, and I find myself watching Augusta for some reason because I know that's the sort of, you know, it means something. And so when you create events that have meaning, you know, then you can actually get an audience, um, you know, to follow it, to get engaged in it, coupled with uh, storytelling about the athletes, and that combination of events and athletes ultimately will be the driver of success. Sam, I wanted to bring you back in. We're from your perspective, having Chris come in, what kind of expertise were you looking at bringing in when you when you did bring Chris on board? 
I think it's probably safe to say so two main areas. I mean, there, there are lots and, and that's, that's why you were probably pausing as you're asking the question. Um, but there are lots, but if I had to put them into two buckets of experience that are most relevant to us, there's obviously the commercialization of the sport and launching, as, as Chris said, this is all based on events. Right. So whether it's launching you know, a major event like Chris put together in the O2 um, you know, many years ago, but it's obviously been hugely successful the last decade. Um, there's that aspect, which, you know, goes from ticket sales to um, broadcast rights to sponsorships. Obviously, it's, it's the full gamut. And then very, very relevantly, it's the other side of it is that we're a we are an athlete organization. We're a membership based organization that's obviously looking after and promoting the interests of individual professional athletes and there are not many people that have been involved in an organization with that structure and have been used to you know both the great opportunities and frankly the difficulties of working with um with major sports personalities you know and in triathlon they certainly aren't as major as they are in tennis in terms of resources or wealth or, or notoriety but it's our intention to change that right and so having someone with that experience is, is hugely valuable have you mapped out a path over three years, five years, any any kind of period like that? Obviously, it's a difficult question to answer at this moment in time. But what are some of the what are some of the signposts that you have for uh, for the PTO? Well, yes, I mean certainly to raise we raised north of um, of ten million US dollars. So to raise that kind of amount from a venture capitalist, we absolutely had to have a have a business plan. Um, whether it all goes up in the air because of COVID, I guess is you know any, anyone's answer. And it was been a very interesting year to have launched. Um, that said, yeah, it's you know it's a, a relatively formulaic process of of launching five, six, maybe seven major events, um, as, as Chris mentioned, that we want to turn into sort of the bucket lists of the endurance space, you know, and it's really looking at if you were starting golf or tennis from scratch now, what would you try to own and what would you try to create? And so we're very, um, very fortunate in that although triathlon has grown hugely, it's, it's largely a participation sport. There are, you know, there are minimal times when professional triathlon is shown on television, um, largely because it's just not the business model of the folks that operate in the space. Um, whereas our model is, you know, both participation, we'll have opportunities for for amateur athletes to race alongside the professionals, which is one of the amazing things about triathlon, of course, that, you know, has the advantage over in golf and tennis, you know, at Wimbledon, you're not allowed to go and play on center court after the final Sunday, right? Whereas in, in triathlon, we can do that. Um, and then also, it's ultimately about you know building out those those major events in different locations. And so, short answer to your question, we were intending to launch our our first major event in May of this year. It's the Collins Cup, and that's really I should also touch on it. It's not just about launching events; it's also about looking at the format and and how will that work for television? Because just simply putting a sport on TV doesn't make it commercial, right? So it was looking at how do you take the elements of it, whether it's the competition itself and the structure and the rules, um, the technology that's used to broadcast it, the talent that's used to capture um, the storytelling and, and all of those components. Um, we were intending to have that with the Collins Cup in May this year. Obviously, COVID, COVID hit. And, and to touch on the Collins Cup a little bit more, it's, it's based on the Ryder Cup. So we've, we've looked at what's been successful in, in other sports, what makes the Ryder Cup this incredible event that transcends golf. And there are, you know, uh, probably we could spend an hour talking about that. But from our perspective, it's, you know, the, the jingoistic element, as Chris mentioned. So we've got athletes representing the USA versus Europe versus international and then racing in matches as opposed to um, a, a gun race. So it's not just the first person across the line. It's, it's athletes from each of those countries in in matches, just like the Ryder Cup has. Um, so that was our first event. It was going to be in May. Obviously, the uh, COVID is is. Put tell to that and so we're planning for it um on may the uh, 28th next year 
Yeah, I want to I want to get into um, into some of the theory, Chris, because, you know, one of the last times we spoke or one of the times we've spoken in the past was uh, at the ATP next gen finals um, out in Milan. And I wanted to kind of get some of your thoughts on, on you know, how events are going to develop in a, in a different media age. But let's first of all, guys, it's the elephant in the room, really, when you when you start a new organisation in a year like this. And Chris, I understand you're in Monaco and Sam, you're in the UK. And I'm sure you have uh, representatives who have kind of um, who would be convening more often, but instead are, you know, generally uh pinned to whatever home office setups they've got um around the world what's that experience been like and and you know what have you i guess used that time to do if you've got the you've got the capital behind you so you have that certainty what have you used that time uh with the collins cup having been postponed to think about um, we actually took what I, I suppose was perceived at the time as an unusual um, move in that we recognized that although it was difficult for us and we were going to delay the Collins Cup and that was having implications on, you know, production and sponsorships and all those kind of conversations, actually the most the people in the most difficult situation were the athletes themselves, because by definition, professional triathletes are, are self-employed, right? They're, they're not in teams. They don't have salaries like in cycling or, or in other sports. And so anyone who was, who was self-employed in, in, environment, in a sports environment in COVID was immediately unemployed. And so actually way back in March, um, we got together with, with our investors and we brought forward all of the prize money that we were going to pay out this year. And we paid it in, in March, essentially like our, our own equivalent of a, of a surplus payment. And some people questioned that and said, "Is that was that logical to do sort of coming out as a new entity without any revenues yet? But to us, it was the most um, obvious thing to do because the most important thing to us are the athletes themselves. And so you invest in you invest in your greatest assets in good times and in bad times. And this was the worst time that we could have could have launched. And so that was really our, our first move. Um, which certainly has allowed athletes, you know, continue to train and, you know, not frankly, you know, go back and get jobs because these are not, not athletes that are earning, you know, hundreds of millions of a year or, or even, you know, fractions of that number. It's really almost hand to mouth. So that was our first first move. And then secondly, more more longer term. Yeah, it's been a bit of a challenge we've had. I mean, we've, we've struggled to even get this phone call set up with the difficulties of technology and remote working the last few weeks. But Chris and I managed to sneak a little bit of time when the borders opened. I got down to Monaco to go through our, our longer term plans. And, and now it's sort of working through when when can events come back and operate that, that we'll be ready and begin to have those conversations with broadcasters and producers and sponsors. And just to um, just to pick up on that, uh, the, the, the intervention you had with, with the athletes, I mean, my understanding at the time was it wasn't quite means tested, but there was some reflection of the fact that some of the athletes at the top who could rely on endorsement deals and, and so on might be better positioned to get through the crisis. So some of that funding was was targeted um, towards athletes and who were further down the ranks. Yes, as, as not quite means tested. It's more that so we had two million dollars that was paid out to the athletes based on on. In fact, all of the money was based on a world ranking. We had two million that was paid out for the athletes, uh, one through fifty, and then uh, this was mainly with with our investors. They recognised, well, what about athletes fifty to hundred? Surely they're they're in the most precarious position. So we pulled forward an additional five hundred thousand dollars of investment. So increased it by that amount and paid those out specifically to the lower ranked athletes. Um, and so yeah, that that gave. Uh, surplus or support or a cushion to sort of enable them to keep keep training over the whole over the the whole period of uh, of the summer join the conversation with the sports pro community follow us on twitter at sports pro 
Find us on Instagram at sportspro.media and connect to SportsPro Media on LinkedIn, where you can also become a part of our specialist OTT community. SportsPro, connecting and inspiring the business world of sport. Chris, just to, to take it forward again, as I said, it, it, it's interesting in the context of some of those conversations that, that you'd had at the ATP about how events might look and what different types of media and what younger audiences uh, or different audiences might want out of an event. You know, when when you were at the ATP, that next gen series, you you kind of trimmed the fat from uh, from a five set tennis match and 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 had a look and and saw what that might look like. And when you look at the the triathlon product, I mean, you're coming in more as a as an outsider. But where do you think the opportunities lie as as a media product for it? What what kind of things do you think you can try? Well, um, it, it's slightly, it's a very good question. It's slightly too early for me to make categoric statements, which I uh, normally do. <laughs> but because um, uh, I sort of, you know, if I get a project, I believe in it. And I believed in the next gen uh, at the ATP. And I was very adamant at the beginning of that whole journey of getting that event off the ground was I wasn't ever saying that what we did at next gen was or should be the final definitive way tennis should be played and every event should be played like it. What I was using it for was a test case um, of being able to try all the things that everyone's talked about over the years, um, almost throw all of it at one event. <clears throat> and and it's only when you do a live event with you know guys on a, on a, on a big stage that you'll see what works and what doesn't. And, you know, I was very, very pleased with lots of the stuff that, that worked. Um, and everyone has an opinion. Um, you'll have all the people that have, you know, that watched tennis for the last 50 years. You know, they don't want any change. And that's fair enough, right? Um, if they like a sport, they've tuned into it because they like it for what it is. But you have to look ahead. And um, the world is changing. Media is changing how people are viewing sports is changing. There's no question about that. No one um, has the answer, you know, the uh, the golden answer. Um, and I think it's trialing things. So with uh, triathlons, to me, this is very much all about how we do the broadcast. Um, so the TV experience is something that I think has huge potential to uh, explore ways of showing endurance sports. You know, currently when I look at uh, all endurance sports, it, it looks the same as it's done for the last 20 years. Um, you know, and that's okay for people who, who, who already watch it. But if you're looking to grow something, I think you've got to do it uh, better and differently. So I think the reformatting element to make it easier to watch on TV is going to be the uh, the exciting challenge ahead. Um, and the Collins Cup actually is an event that really does provide that opportunity because it's, it's less athletes uh, at the same time. Um, you really do feel the team element. You can get behind the, the, the three elements of triath triathlons uh, easily. And I think, yeah, it just gives us the, the opportunity to start trying things and some things will work, some things won't. But I think things like performance data, which, you know, everybody loves data. 
Um, there is a huge amount of data in triathlons. And um, I think if we can bring that to life, will be a big advantage uh, moving forward. I guess a couple of other areas, um, and, and Sam, you might have an opinion on this as well, but, you know, a couple of other areas where triathlon is in a position to capitalise on on trends within uh, within the wider media landscape. One is obviously that it's, it's an individual sport and it's very much kind of athlete-centred and you are an athlete-centred organisation. And, you know, there's a a role i guess that athletes can play in that on that content creation side of things yeah absolutely and i go further and say that realistically this probably as a business model wouldn't have been possible even maybe 10 years ago because it was so much harder for to have a direct to consumer relationship whereas now whether it's social media whether it's ott i mean all of sport is moving D to C and listening to your conference last week, it's almost the phrase that everyone is using now when it's not new. I appreciate it's been a couple of years. Um, having a direct consumer relationship is such an incredible opportunity for us. And indeed, it's an enabler, whether that's at the athlete level um, of facilitating and encouraging building out their, their own profiles or it's at the organization level and the event level where we can reach directly to a consumer with an OTT product and not really rely or be as beholden to broadcast partners. I mean, certainly not to say by any sense the word that broadcast partners aren't an incredibly important part of the ecosystem, but they're no longer the gateway to launching a product like this. And, and we can ultimately validate the value in triathlon ourselves before building it up over time, which, you know, very comparable to, say, UFC back in the day, um, you know, 15 years ago. And and the other the other part of it that I wanted to ask about was, you know, and, and if my attention was drawn to um, something that uh, Super League Triathlon tried over the summer uh, in Rotterdam, which is where they incorporated a, a kind of Zwift stage to this. And I don't know whether this is your place or whether this is, you know, perhaps more for for organisations that have that more participatory element to them that that exists in other parts of, tri- of the triathlon world. But that opportunity for um, spectators or fans to take part in the in the event, in the content, in however you want to frame it, um, is that something that you would be open to exploring? I mean, hugely so. I mean, as, as we said earlier, one of the major distinctions um, between triathlon and almost every other sport is that as an amateur participant, I can toe the line alongside my professional idol. Um, and there are very rare, very, very rare, you know, there, there are a handful, whether it's marathons, whether it's triathlons, where, where you can do that. I mean, the um, the online sort of element that you, you mentioned with Super League was was incredibly impressive, the innovation that they put together, especially during during the pandemic. Um, and so we, we look at that as, you know, great examples of, of innovation coming into the space. And, and really, it's nice for us because it's it's another group that is validating the value in this audience. Um, where it goes longer term, you know, hard to say, but certainly the um, the ability to engage fans that can participate rather than just consume we think that's that's a really valuable part of of what the sport is and indeed plays into really where sport is going you know post this whole difficult period the world is going through the the one maybe positive is that more people are are running more people are cycling more people are swimming and and triathlon should be a huge beneficiary of, of that trend as a brand new entrant is there ever a line that you're walking between innovation and uh and you know that ability to you're not a legacy organization so you don't have kind of uh, a, a lot of expectations that you bring with you in terms of how things are presented but is there ever a line between that and people not taking some of that innovation seriously for want of a better expression 
Oh, it's a, it's a great question. And I think you can't change in reformatting the product. You can't change it so far that people don't recognize what it is. Right. So there's I think there's a big difference between innovation to drive something forward and just changing things for change's sake. So, yeah, I would for sure agree that we've got to be careful there. Um, we're fortunate in our case in that there really has been so little innovation in, in the broadcast product of the sport because it's not fundamentally part of the business model. If you if you look at the incumbent players with endurance sports, it's largely about getting more people to sign up and buy an entry to a race as opposed to creating profiles of athletes, building them up, ultimately driving to a rights value and increased sponsorship values over time. And so no one's really invested to the level that we think is required. And, you know, not to repeat ourselves the last, you know, 40 minutes or so, it's it's pretty simple, right? It's back to the storytelling, building profiles of the athletes, using technology, as Chris said before, whether it's performance data, um, to ultimately create an exciting, engaging product. Um, and that ultimately comes down to, you know, the talent of the people we bring into the organization, like Chris, not to give him too much kudos just at the end of this interview. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Okay. <laughs> Well, Chris, now that now that Sam has has butted you up with some <laughs> some compliments, I wanted to um, uh, you know, we we're obviously we're taking the opportunity to look forward at what you're doing with the PTO, but I wanted to to bring things back at a year or so and and just reflect a bit on some of your experiences uh, in your role at the ATP. I mean, just broadly, first of all, how do you how do you feel about that period now? Not necessarily how it ended, but how do you feel about your time there and 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 what did it teach you about about the the sports industry well it was a a, a fantastic uh I, I was there as executive chairman and president for uh, six years uh, which is two terms it was uh, an incredible experience and yeah i have absolutely no regrets doing the job i lived and breathed it 24 hours a day seven days a week for for uh, for six years i think what was you know the the, the huge positives were that we could actually make some changes, which again, people were very uh, negative when I first started saying, you know, you'll never, for instance, do next gen, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll never pull off a team event. Um, uh, you'll never bring in sponsors of the caliber that we did. You, you know, there are lots of naysayers. And so we, we achieved uh, a hell of a lot in, in the six years. And, you know, it was more political um, than probably, even though I'd been around the sport a long time, more than I had appreciated, um, which is fine. But it would, so that part of it was a was a learning curve for me in terms of I'd always been used to sort of uh, outlining an idea, presenting an idea, and then taking it forward and the execution of it. Um, so things took longer um, than first anticipated because you had to get everyone's buy-in um, you know both sides from the promoters and and from the uh, from the players, and it was, there was there was a great experience for me to um, to go through that. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was six years very well well spent, and I learned a lot. How do you reflect on it now that you've had a year where you've not been at the coalface? You know, do, do you ever look back across at tennis and think? Do you understand it differently, basically, from from the outside um, now that you're not involved with it on a day to day basis? Obviously, it's a very different year from any that you had in your your time in, in the sport. Yeah, I mean, from 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 the outside, what what I was very um, keen when I first spoke to Charles and Sam 
uh, about this role here. So, you know, one of one of the things with sport is, uh, however big the sport is, you cannot assume that anyone who isn't a voyeur of that sport actually knows anything about it or who anybody is. And so I, I've always sort of prided myself when I was in tennis is, and, and with a really excellent management team that I had around me was to remind everybody on a constant basis that we talk amongst ourselves in offices about uh, how great, you know, certain things in the sport uh, are, whether it's some, you know, an athlete winning that we, you know, that's great for the promotion of the sport, whatever. But to, to be incredibly realistic, to know that actually in the wide world that isn't engaged in that sport on a day-to-day -day basis, maybe people don't know as much. And so rarely did I ever employ anyone who was a super fan because they actually lose judgment uh, of, of where the sport is in real terms. Um, so when I watch now from sort of outside of, uh, of the role that I'm in, um, I, I think I sort of have the same perspective as, as when I was doing the job. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, you say you have no regrets about it or, or how it ended particularly, but you, do you ever feel any sense of, I don't want to say ownership, but do you ever feel, you know, you're, you're, you have some investment in it as you're watching how the fortunes of, of the sport play out? Yeah, I think especially with the, um, especially with the events, um, the, the sort of the three major events that I was responsible for, um, you know, the World Tour Finals at the O2 was was sort of my baby. Um, and again, right at the beginning, everyone said that wouldn't work. Um, and it was hugely successful. Uh, I'm very proud of that event. The next gen again in Milan, um, obviously on a smaller scale, but, you know, was, was just as proud of that because it was so different. And then the, uh, the ATP Cup, which was something that every single person in the sport said we would never, ever achieve. I mean, there wasn't one person who said we would pull this off. And uh, so very proud that that event, so, you know, so I feel uh, I will probably always feel, as long as those events go on, uh, a major connection. Um, and there's a sort of part of me in all those events. And without, you know, without being a backseat driver or anything like that, is there anything that you feel um, the ATP as an organisation and the, and the sport more generally, is there anything you feel that they need to keep in mind when it comes to the, the future health uh, of tennis? Well, I think it's, you know, constantly I bang the drum about the next generation of fans. You know, people always talked in big sports about, you know, especially when there's a golden era, which tennis clearly has had um, over the last 10 years, probably the best era in men's professional tennis. Um, you know, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, Stan Wawrinka, Del Potro, I mean, the list goes on. I mean, amazing talent. Um, and everyone says, oh, you know, when they go, the game won't be the same. Well, it won't be the same just as when every era ends, but it's an amazing, this sport has an amazing ability to, to produce new champions and, uh, and you need rivalries and they will come. I've never, ever had any doubt about that um, and the young talent coming through in tennis is, is incredible it's geographically diverse as I said before um, so all the components uh, of success are there the concern for all sport is where are the next generation of fans and I think just 
you know, tennis is, you know, the ATP are continuing um, to explore all the avenues uh, to, uh, you know, to embrace that uh, and to deal with that situation head on, because probably for the next, I don't know, five, six, seven years, you could probably leave it alone and it would be absolutely fine. But there's going to come a point where, you know, you have to sort of redefine the sport and whether that's reformatting or, you know, marketing in a different way, whatever that is. I, I think it's probably all broadcast based, media based um, and adapting to the, the, the changing times. And, yeah, I think there's time to do it. And that's why I wanted to do next gen. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago was never, you know, sport shouldn't rush into making ludicrous changes for change's sake, as Sam mentioned, because that's just daft. You want to try things, you want to test things, and you do it from a position of strength. Um, and then you don't rush into mistakes. And, you know, what you can do is keep the core elements that make that sport, um, you know, amazing and great and fascinating. You keep those core elements, but adapt uh, and, um, uh, you know, it's sort of it's, it's evolution rather than revolution. And, yeah, you, you adapt to the new landscape, the media landscape. And that's going to be the key for all sports, including soccer, by the way. Finally, in terms of the leadership or visions for the leadership of, of tennis as a sport as a whole, um, I mean, you know, we've, we've seen the launch of a, a new players union that wasn't wasn't universally welcomed perhaps and but but also had some support from different areas we've also seen uh during lockdown there was a, a, a swell of support for greater collaboration perhaps even you know a, a more perhaps even moving towards a merger between the ATP and, and the WTA from that perspective as, as a kind of a north star for the sport what how does it need to be led where does that need to come from and is it better as a more united sport? Is it better with greater competition, more voices? How do you see that? It's a difficult one. I mean, uh, Andrea Gaudenzi, who took over from me, I, I, uh, you know, I feel very badly for him. Um, he's had a very rough start. I mean, not only with, with obviously, probably the worst pandemic, certainly the world's seen. And, you know, having to deal with the logistics of that, you know, then having to deal with, um, you know, uh, the, the, the new players union uh, or association, uh, don't quite know what it is, it is, has been incredibly difficult. And I think, you know, he, he deserves a, you know, some breathing space and a chance to, uh, um, you know, show the next vision and, and to go along, you know, and to go forward and get people to buy into him. And I think that's only fair. Um, in terms of, the, the talk of the, you know, tennis being fragmented has, has always been there. And I've never truly understood it because um, people would refer when they use this argument with me, they'd say, well, you know, you look at the NFL, you look at the NBA and that they're incomparable because they're fundamentally domestic sports. Right. So if you have a global sport, I mean, you look at, you know, football has the FA, has the Premier League, has the Champions League. It has FIFA, UEFA, you know, that it's not, there is not one universal football organization, um, you know, and, you know, I, I just think the global nature makes it very difficult to have one. 
and with tennis, you've you've got the four Grand Slams, uh, you know, so you have the Grand Slam nations, and there's four of those that um, sit outside the ATP. You know, then they're, they're never going to come into the ATP umbrella, and pr- probably shouldn't do. So I think I, I don't know. I think it's a lot of in, insider industry people. It's a very easy jab to say the quote dysfunctionality of it is because of the. Um, you know, the, the segmented organisations. But I, I actually don't believe that's the case. In fact, Andrea Gaudenz is big, you know, he came in very openly saying, you know, the sport must work together more. Um, and he's, you know, opening his arms to uh, get everybody to work together better, uh, you know, which is a, a very, very good move. Um, and I think I've always said when when times are good, um, it's almost impossible to make change. Very, very difficult because when it when it comes down to the crunch of voting for something, change, whether you're an athlete or a promoter, the decision comes down to, oh, am I going to be better off? Well, actually, things are pretty good at the moment, so and they'll back off any change because they'll go, actually, I'm okay where we are. When things are bad, uh, especially sort of financially, economically, which the COVID-19 has brought a very bad situation. That's when you are going to get people to really focus on whether they want to change. And so to me, this is the time where change can actually happen. This is a real opportunity um, in this period because people are going to be financially hurt. And that's when you'll see people come together much easier than when things are going well. Okay, well, we'll watch this space. Sam, I'll leave the final comment with you because you've sat out that conversation about a completely different sport. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, really interesting to hear. Um, well, yeah, par- parting thought. Oh, I've got an easy one then. Um, last year, $1.6 billion was spent in golf sponsorship. Triathlon has an almost identical market that's growing um, that can be reached for a fraction of that cost. So that's, it's a super interesting commercial opportunity for the many listeners of the podcast to get in touch with us um, about how about that for a plug? That's a great plug. I'm not sure how many <laughs> listeners we have, but um, <laughs> invite all of them to think again uh, on triathlon. Guys, thanks very much for your time. It's a really interesting conversation. Thank you to Camode. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you very much indeed. And yep. to Sam Rooney. Great stuff. Uh, and we'll speak to you again very soon. Bye-bye. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon. 